Hello, I'm Danny Duran and this is the Infinite Jigsaw Podcast, a place for honest conversation, discovery and with a genuine incentive to improve sense making. Well, in this episode, I'm very pleased to present a continuation of discussions with my friend Carbon Mike and our guest for this week is James Block who has featured on the podcast previously and writes an excellent and thoughtful blog entitled The Reflective Preacher. You can find that by typing The Reflective Preacher in your browser. Uh, And unlike my usual format of more straightforward interviewing, this is a roundtable, open discussion. And in it, we talk about faith, political affiliation, scaling up, community versus individualism, and much more. I hope you enjoy. So what you said, James, about um, about having swept away Christianity, yeah, I'm trying to, and, and, and I'm very careful to say when people ask that foundationism is not is not a religion, it's not a re- replacement for religion. Um, we have perfectly good religions to use, uh, you know, and, and Christianity may be the best of them. Um, but I... You know, part of what motivated me was that when I, uh, well, when I left the left some time ago, you know, I used to be, I used to be like a lefty, progressive, angry young black man, so on and so forth. When I left the left, when I, when I kind of had enough, I didn't go to the right, right? I didn't, you know, decide to join the young Republicans or whatever, um, because I, I I got the sense that there were, there were there were no good answers there either, and over time it came to me that that what we really needed was was a higher quality reasoning. We needed we needed to be we needed a, like a better internal discipline so that we could have higher quality political arguments. Like the uh, to me the the goal of kind of eliminating division was always kind of a utopian kind of thing you don't want to eliminate divisiveness from politics you want the you want the divisions to be honest you want the divisions in your political culture to reflect the divisions in your actual society so you can really argue about the things that matter to you and come to higher quality compromises or solutions or whatever and so that's when I got to thinking about foundationism and I was also tired of all these crackpots with their 50 page manifestos. And I said, let's, you know, I wanted to have something that, 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 that people could actually do every day in the manifesto. Right. You, you know, if you say, well, we need to do this and we need to break down the military industrial complex. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, you can't do that. What can you actually do tomorrow? What can what can what can you what can you start doing and kind of check your progress week by week because these internally directed things and so um, that was that was uh, kind of my objective and then along the way as I started really thinking about foundationism trying to develop it I also realized that I was kind of newly interested in Christianity uh, Jordan Peterson was uh, one of the kind of gateway drugs that that that, that took me there. Um, Simone Weil was another, uh, and uh, C.S. Lewis was another, and uh, 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 G.K. Chesterton was was another, and I realized that, um, well, I, I kind of became a pilgrim, you know, uh, and 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 so so that so that kind of informed uh, uh, the way I've thought about things. <clears throat> 
Sure. Well, um, I'm 71, and uh, I hope that um, even if some of what I'm about to say, Mike, sounds a bit strange to you, I hope Danny will pick up on it, because in terms of UK politics, I've always partly, uh, as a result of my Christianity, been considered to be what is described over here as being a pinko, slightly left, you know, not 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 full blown um, red, yeah. um, but certainly someone who cares deeply about, um, you know, about the, those who, through no fault of their own, you know, have have um, not enough to, to of even the basics to live on, um, and how we as Christians can help them. And the really odd thing about the last couple of years is that I think that the terms left and right have been swept away. Yes. And we've we I I have I suddenly find to my shock and my horror that I'm described as an extreme right winger. Mm. And I don't think my position's changed at all. I really don't. I, I don't think my views are any different now to 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 what they were when I was 40. Now, do, do you recognize that, Danny? I do recognise it. Um, I, I have a sense of, and I've always had a sense of non-partisanism because every time I've joined a group, every time I've sort of affiliated myself with whatever group, especially a, a political group, I've always found that down the line, I've experienced distaste of one type or another. So the older I get, and I think the the current era has sped this up in my mind, the more I become unaffiliated and the more I become disenfranchised and then the calmer I become. So I, I can't help but now adopt a lens of non-partisanism. And what that does is it's, it stops me from getting into any kind of mud or deep water in my own mind with my own political arguments in my own mind with other people and it enables me to to really exist on the periphery and that's what i've always done really in you know in social situations in my life i think that's what my my character is i've always been a periphery type of character well mike if you'll forgive me for jumping straight in here i uh, i've always been the same i have never been a member of a political party and i've now drifted away from the Church of England as an organisation for for almost exactly the reasons that Danny's just given for for not feeling comfortable about being, you know, in the party political system, and you know one of one of your very very um, clear and and tenets, um, Mike, which is difficult to 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 argue with, um, is the um, um, uh, is the um I'm, I'm just trying to look for it in my notes but um um reason honestly reason honestly um i think that the problem if we don't reason honestly is that we go in the line of party politics where everyone has to buy into some kind of standard party line whether they agree with it or not and the more they spout it the more dishonest they become because they you know, they're taught to just trot out the same phrases time after time. I read a little bit about this. So I see the party political thing and, and the religion thing in a very similar way. And one of the questions 
Mike, which I wrote down after I'd listened to what you'd had to say, was um, that I wondered why you tended to use the word religion rather than faith, because to me, I'm a person of, of faith, but I'm absolutely not a person of religion, meaning that I don't buy into the whole paraphernalia of the bureaucracy and the organisation and the hierarchy, um, and I don't even buy into all of the um, stuff that they do in churches of processing and wearing robes and and lighting candles and all of that kind of stuff. So to me, the two two things, um, religion and, and and party politics, are wound up in the same thing. Uh, okay, this is a good question. I so I think mm. of religion and faith as being separate things you, you can argue that um religion requires faith but then many things require faith mm. building things requires faith you know um uh for young people being a good student applying yourself requires faith mm. we tell young people that if you yeah. apply yourself to this thing that seems to have no practical application to anything they see adults do and if they do that for years and years, then they will have better lives. That's faith. It's not necessarily religion, but it's faith. And, 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 and we, we call on them to have faith. So faith is one thing. I think faith is very important. And uh, so, so, so that's, that's that side. Now, as far as religion is concerned, I think the problem that you talk about, and, and this is a problem that I see, I mean, um, Several of our friends who are Christian, some of whom are actually in the church, have gotten a lot of stick mm. for mm. standing up for things that you would think were just perfectly normal and non-controversial. Father Jamie Franklin, yeah. who I've spoken with a few times, uh, 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 got a lot of flack from inside his own organization, Church of England, for saying that he thought people should get married and have big families. It's outrageous. Okay. Is that a problem with religion per se? No, I think it's really a problem of scale. I mean, I mean, the th look, the problem that I think a lot of people have with with what they call organized religion, which I think we'll get to the problem I have with that term in a second, but the problem they have with it really comes down to a problem of scale. All organizations uh, are susceptible to corruption, and the larger and and all organizations are susceptible to dysfunction. The larger mm. an organization is, the longer its internal feedback loops take to operate. And so the more, the more difficult it is for it to operate rationally, for it to root out corruption, for all these things. Scale is the problem. You know, the, this is one of those one of those kind of realizations that came to me as I was trying to I was looking around for for a better set of answers than just down with capitalism versus rah 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 capitalism. You know, the the at least in America, that's the that's the left versus right dichotomy, right? Well, I was done with the down mm. with capitalism people. Um, you know, the, 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 that that obviously didn't make any sense to me. But I wasn't really good with the rah 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 capitalism people. That seemed just shallow and facile and not well thought out. And what I started to realize, partly as, as a result of having worked in the software industry, right, what I realized was that, you know, 
it came to me that very large companies tend to be terrible at writing software. That's mm-hmm. what I noticed. You know, I've been I've been a software developer for about twenty six years or so. Very large companies are terrible at writing. So why? Well, it's not. It's obviously not because of capitalism per se, right? It's not because software is. It's not because of something inherent in the nature of software. It's because of something inherent in the nature of scale. And 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 so the problem it seems to me that you have with with um, with the church is precisely because the church has just gotten too big, and that's a fundamental problem. Um, and now religion. Look, as far as I'm concerned, religion is a a, a value hierarchy. It's a hierarchy of loves, if you like, but it's a fixed hierarchy of values with some kind of moral absolute at the top. So right away, when people say that they're not a fan, that they're not fans of organized religion, my ears perk up because I say, well, religion is, you're saying, it's, it's like saying you're against structure. You can, you can structured religion, but religion is structure. It is organization. Because you see, the, problem that, the problems that you and I see in our society, forget about the church for a second, the problems we see and, 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 and the kind of the, the, the kinds of wickedness that uh, apparently uh, well-intentioned people uh, will endorse and co-sign on, a lot of these things are not because they are necessarily evil people. Mm-hmm. The problem is specifically because they are irreligious, meaning they have values, but their values are in no hierarchy. They are in no fixed relationship to each other, right? So it's important to, you know, you should, uh, it's, 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 you know, bullying people is wrong and you should help the, you should feed the, uh, the hungry and help the poor and you should take care of your family and you should, okay. How do those how do those values how do those values relate to each other? They have to have they have to be in a hierarchy. They can't all be in a flat arrangement because you can't live you can't order your life that way. Some things are more important than others. Some things are better than others. Some things are worse than others. Religion, a hierarchy of values, and specifically the hierarchical structure, is what lets you reason about things and reason about whether something is better than another thing or one thing is worse than nothing and and whether or not you're making progress. So I think that the problem people have with religion and by the way the problem exists here too. The problem they have is 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 the problem of the scale of official religious organizations and I'll pause in a second but I just want to say that here um I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I remember I mean, I'm old enough to remember that um, that there was a time when Christianity was was a part of the counterculture. Like there was actually a time, I think this was in the 70s, when Jesus was cool, right? Like, in other words, it was it, it was not it, it wasn't it wasn't seen as you know as a, a, a weird or gauche or whatever to to like to talk about Jesus in your pop music song. Like that was normal. Now, one thing I noticed happened here in America is that the religious establishment. And this started to happen. It seems to me around uh, in the eighties. I think around when you know when Reagan was president is that the religious establishment <clears throat> threw its lot in wholesale 
with the state. And that was a terrible error. That was a terrible mistake on their part, because what, what it meant was that anything that the state did, remember, we were still in the Cold War at that time. The state was co-signing all kinds of monstrous things in the name of opposing communism. And so whatever the state did, uh, the, the religious establishment, the, the, the big churches, the evangelicals, so on and so forth, they would be tarred with. And they were tarred with, you know. So, so this problem with scale is, I think, something we really need to grapple with. I don't think uh, I don't think religion itself is, is is a bad thing. I don't even think a religion necessarily requires a deity. It's just that most people in the world do believe in a deity, and therefore most people in the world have a religion because they have a set of hierarchical values with that deity, with that moral absolute at the top. So, well, yeah. Sorry, Danny, do you want to go first? Yeah, I, I was going to say okay come in there because a couple of things mike said there he spoke about for better or worse and and talking of organizations i've also got in mind the requirement and the natural emergence of of, of political affiliations and by extension political parties and at times do you know what i squirm at this periphery disposition that i described earlier and as mike just said faith is it's, it's kind of a natural emergence in the human condition, whether it's religious or political. So I understand the tendency to affiliate. Um, you know, should our species not have this inclination, we'd, we'd, we'd have got nowhere, right, if we didn't mm. have the inclination to affiliate with each other. But uh, we live and die by our decisions, and, of course, then our mistakes. So I asked the question to myself and, and, and to you two and to everyone, how do we manage our inclination to group together with those that we have a sense are not leading us down a righteous path in the knowledge that mistake making and moral fallibility is a kind of hard-coded aspect of every human life played out in the world how do we manage that gosh uh, I, th I think i I'll, I'll have to think about that danny but my my immediate reaction is to say to Mike that I completely um, buy into the idea that scale is the problem with organizations. And I also buy into, if, if you like, the sort of corollary of that, Danny, which I think you're saying, which is that without um, human communities, we're, we're nothing, you know, as, as human beings, um, uh, unless we get together. So, the problem, I think, is the one that Mike's outlined, which is that the what starts off as a, a warm, friendly way of people actually communicating with each other becomes gradually bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually you, the, the people involved with it gain a sense of, or sorry, involved with organising and running and administering it gain a sense of remoteness um, which means that they are no longer connected to the people and mm. if you'll forgive me for making a further reference here uh, we, we, we had some correspondence about your interview Danny with Matthias Desmet and I, mm. I, I think if I remember what he said correctly he said that, you know one of the root conditions that leads to mass formation is the, the fact that people um, feel lonely, 
feel remote. And I think the bigger things become, the more remote they feel. So, the, yes. you know, the larger the country, the more remote people feel both geographically and in, in terms of number. But also, um, uh, the, the larger the organisation, the more that organisation, whether it's the Church of England or the European Union or the World Health Organisation, they, they actually get to a stage where they start to think that the only thing, the only thing that matters is the survival of the organisation itself with or without the people. I mean, this is, this is very interesting. Uh, I scribbled some notes as you were talking. I think I, I'm with you on most of what you said, James. I think, uh, well, look, first of all, the problems of scale are not inevitable. And I, th I think we, sh we should first maybe, maybe talk about the kinds of organizations because th th there's a few different things that are rolled into what Danny was talking about, right? Like, in other words, there's there's joining political parties, for example, and like feeling you're affiliated with with a movement. Um, is that Chipper that, in the back? That's, that's my no, dog. No, that's James's oh, dog. Oh, that's your dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, so there's that's all right. So yes, there's um, I mean, there's joining political parties. There's creating uh, uh, uh and there's creating local associations and friendly societies and so on and so forth right now it seems to me that that first of all what you talked what you said about organizations getting larger and larger this is not inevitable right it's it's not inevitable if if you start some local society for the preservation of you know whatever in your in your part of the country there's nothing that particularly says it has to grow larger and larger and larger until it becomes completely ineffectual. That's the, the you know, and, and uh, but, but nor is there a particular formula that you can use to automatically guard against that. That just takes vigilance. Well, that's always the case. I mean, anyone who's tended a garden knows that that's, that's, that's the price you pay is vigilance. You just have, you know, and, and, and when you, when you stop tending your garden, your garden goes to seed. That's it. So we have to understand that that's we have to dispense with our longing for permanent solutions. Okay, the solution is for us to build small local organizations and tend them carefully all our lives. That's it. Mm. Now, as far as politics is concerned, I think the problem there is, I mean, how can I put this? What, what I what I have noticed, right? And this goes to something you were saying, James, is, is look, human beings are tribal creatures. That That is just how we are. Now, if we deprive ourselves of, I should say, if we deny our tribal nature for whatever silly reason, that tribal nature will manifest itself in some other way. And the, the other way in which it manifests itself will probably be worse because we won't be aware, won't be paying attention to it necessarily. In the same sense that you know, there are certain things that we always get. Religion, by the way, is kind of is more or less what you get. You you get a belief in something in any case. You know, Chesterton, I think he was one who said, if you don't believe in God, you just believe in anything. Okay. Mm. So belief in things, okay, is what you get in any case. Markets. 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm always, I'm always beating up on my libertarian brethren, uh, because aside from the fact that that they they don't have a coherent, I mean, libertarianism isn't isn't libertarianism is not a coherent political doctrine. The fact is that um, I, I never, I never saw what was so great about celebrating markets. Markets are what you get in any case. Okay. Sure. The question is always how well they operate, how transparently they operate, and how well they serve human beings, because human beings are the point, you know, and human flourishing is the point and everything else is just an instrument. So it, it, it just seems to me that, that, uh, political organizations are what you're going to get in any case in a society that is larger than whatever, right? The, mo the moment a society uh, crosses a certain, certain threshold of size and complexity, you have to have some kind of politics. Um, Political parties are open to corruption. They can okay, that's normal. The problem is not that we have political parties. The problem is that we invest too much, I think. We invest too much in our political parties. A political party is just an instrument. You know, I if, you know, I think what when Danny talks about being the kind of person who is on the periphery, I think that 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 is a good and proper thing when it comes to political parties and organizations and things of that nature. Mm. I don't think it's good and proper when it comes to local, and I don't think he meant it in this sense, when it comes to local organizations and groups of friends and things like that. You're not supposed to be on the periphery of those things. You can't be on the periphery of your family. You're in the midst of it and you're supposed to be. But the, and, and, and these are the things that satisfy are our desires as social creatures, right? The desire to be with each other, with, with other people, the, the desire to, 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 to sit down and break bread with other people and, and, and to be touched by other people and to sing with them and to work with them and to, 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 to compete with them and all these things, right? But, but as far as political parties are concerned, those are just instruments. And I think much of the problem with our politics in your country and mine is that, is that we, like we're taking that, we're taking that, uh, affiliation with that party way too personally you know it's like mm -hmm. a, the democratic party is an instrument the republican party is an instrument it's not an expression of of, of moral worth it's it's not a you know what i'm saying it's not my family well i'm not a republican anyway but even if i and, and i'm not a democrat no longer a democrat either but but you know for those people who are or if, if you're labor if you're tory if you're snp whatever it's like the that's not your family. That's not your tribe. And the problem is that because we've submerged our tribal nature and thought we were getting rid of it, it's emerged again in the middle of our politics where it does great damage. Yes. It, it, because it prevents us from reasoning honestly, you see. And just one last thing before, I, 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 I don't know, I've gone on for a bit, but, you know, the, the, so... The thing about, um, I mean, you mentioned uh, reasoning honestly, right? And and uh, we're talking about politics and, well, love, you know, patriotism, because I do consider myself a patriot and I think patriotism is a good thing. But, uh, you know, this puts me in mind of G.K. Chesterton, who talked about the rational versus the irrational patriot. And it strikes me that a lot of uh, what, what's got us in such trouble is rational patriotism. I mean, when you when you mentioned earlier this thing of people making excuses for for the shortcomings of an organization, 
you know, I, right away I went to thinking of rational versus irrational patriotism. And as a, at a certain point when, when I was able to, thanks to uh, the late, great Stanley Crouch, uh, I was able to get comfortable with the idea of being a black man in America and loving my country, right? Mm. Uh, I saw immediately that that I would have to love it. And at, at that time in my life, I hadn't even read Chesterton yet, but I saw that I, I would have to love it without a reason. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I would have to love it because it was my home. Yes. Not because it and 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 that brought into focus the things that I had all that had always gotten on my nerves about con, so-called conservatives, right wingers, when they'd say America has always da 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 da. America has always I love America because it's always stood for freedom and democracy. It hasn't always stood for don't say that. You don't have to say that. It's not true. Okay? Love your country because it's your home. Because it is your country. That's all. Yeah. You, you don't love your mother because she's perfect. Because she's not perfect. You love her because she's your mother. Okay. Mm. You know, and it seems to me that, that that this part of this this epidemic of dishonest reasoning that's got us in so much trouble, part of that is attributable to the idea that we are looking for, uh, 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 we're loving too many things rationally. We we want to love our country rationally. Love it irrationally. That's okay. And 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 the because the 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 irrationality the, the 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 one big mystery at the center and again I'm 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 going to Chesterton allows you to be rational in everything else. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, if I understand you correctly, Mike, I think um, I think we're onto something really quite quite important here, which is that. Um, and I hope I haven't, I'm not misrepresenting you, but I think the, the difference between the tribalism that we get sucked into as a natural condition of being human is different to um, the organization demanding buy-in to particular things. One of the things that attracted me to the Church of England when I was training to become a minister was that it was not doctrinaire. I mean, the Roman Catholics, for example, have the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. Well, you know, we don't have any of that. And, and actually, the Church of England is that wonderfully English thing of a hopeless muddle. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't really know what it believes. And if you if you read the reports coming out of um, uh, the UK at the moment about the gathering of the bishops from all over the Anglican world, I mean it becomes very obvious that they you know that there is this um, I'll use your word Mike irrationality. But but when you get into organisations where you have to buy into the dogma, where you have to buy into every jot and tittle of the of the of the um uh of the doctrine that that organization has developed that's where i think um organizations start becoming remote start losing the support that caused them to come into existence in the first place and actually need to be torn down and restarted in a in a in a smaller way 
but the world is going in, in the opposite direction over the course of my life you know we've had the creation of these things like the uh, european union and people are even actively now talking about world government and you know the dismantling of uh, of, of the nation state and all of that and i'm not saying it's going to happen but i do think that you know we're going in a in a dangerous condition and i think matthias desmet senses some of that um let me, let me jump in there there's there's something that you've both touched on there you might you spoke about scaling and scaling up um it, isn't it true that that scale and scaling up it's only really possible from uh, the correct administration of, of group activity, right? So if that's an axiom, the problem at hand isn't kind of the exponential growth of groups, but the ideas driving the ideology of the group. And let's not kid ourselves that the central drivers of groups and organizations are in fact shared ideas and they manifest as ideologies. Now, there is lots of contributing factors that build ideologies, but I get the sense that those who lend their mind and their body to an ideology, to an ideological machine, are inevitably in captivation. So is the lesson not to join, would you say? I, I don't think so. I, I think the lesson might be to join on your own terms. And those terms should be, I follow your lead up until the point where I feel I'm being led down a dark path or a, a substandard path, whether. And then you, as a leader, must be prepared to come under scrutiny. And in there is the corruption of leadership. Leaders must be prepared to be held to account. This was understood by ancient leaders. They, tra they trailblazed this for us. And we are forgetting that cultural innovation, are we not? Oh, superb thought, Danny. Absolutely spot on. I would agree with every single word. Yeah. I agree with, with, with where you ended up. It's just that I don't think scaling, um, you don't necessarily, I mean, all kinds of things, all kinds of organizations, all kinds of systems can scale up or people can try to scale up all kinds of organizations with varying degrees of success. Um, so you can try to scale something with bad ideas you can try to scale an organization that has bad ideas, in other words, and what you'll end up with is a big organization with bad ideas. You can try to scale up an organization that has good ideas and good founding principles, and it can end up a dysfunctional mess anyway, simply because it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't operate well at that size. Some things are inherently unscalable, right? And, and mm -hmm. b because we've been worshiping we are the descendants of an age in which human beings acquired the ability to do great things, to do big things. And so this, there's a sense in which we, we've, we've always, the sense in which we've been brought up to worship size. And in the absence of religion, specifically in the absence of Christianity, um, we have, th th this is an especially, this, this tendency is especially pronounced. You see, because Christianity is one of those religions, it, it may be unique in the world, but it's certainly rare that displaces size as an and might okay as the arbiter of correctness mm. you know mm. pagans tend to worship strength right christians worship something else and that's very interesting but going back to your thing um look i think the problem is it's certainly true danny that that our leaders are not prepared to undergrow uh, excuse me 
our leaders are not prepared to undergo undergo scrutiny, to be scrutinized, to have their actions watched, to, to be held to account for their actions. But I'm sorry, I think the problem is deeper than that. The problem is that people people are not reasoning on reasoning honestly about the actions of their leaders. So they simply they simply don't pay attention. It's in and and this is the thing. It's not even that these things are happening, uh, that these things are being hidden from us. They're not being hidden from us. People just don't care. You know, there's a very interesting political ferment going on in my country right now, as as you know, if you look at the news. And it's not good. I mean, again, I, I, I don't like what the Democratic Party is doing right now. But I do remember... Uh, in the in the months and 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 uh, well yeah in in the months after nine eleven, when there was this big move to increase the size and the power of the surveillance state, and at that time I was on the left, and I remember arguing with people who called themselves conservatives, and I say you know you only you only uh uh you're only all right with this you're only okay with something like the Patriot Act. Because you think it will never be used against someone oh, like yeah, 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 you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And 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 look at where we are now, right? And it it has come to pass. And a lot of the things that 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 people that so-called conservatives thought would only be used against those people, whoever those people are, turn right around and you because because that is the nature of power. So going back to what you were saying, Danny, I think that, um, yes, I agree with you that we should be, we should always be holding each other to account. Um, I, I could even, I could restate this in a way that I'm, I'm kind of, th- th- that I'm fond of, which is that rational behavior, intelligent behavior is impossible without feedback loops. If I do something, I have to get some input I have to receive some input back about what I did or tried to do and integrate that into my operating so I can do it better the next time. So, mm-hmm. it's, you know, uh, so intelligent behavior is impossible without feedback loops. And so now we have a little bit of a, a formula. We could say, well, you know, is this is this person paying attention to their feedback? Is this person embedded in, in an organization that shields them from the feedback that would otherwise inform them? Right? Yeah. And so on and so forth, and we, but 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 it's always the feedback loop. And so any any organization, any structure uh, that that's supposed to operate, um, if it needs to operate intelligently, it has to have feedback loops. If the feedback loops take too long to operate, the thing starts to operate in a way that doesn't make sense, and it can survive um, for a while in that state, but it will just increasingly uh operate in a way that d- doesn't make sense and the problem with the government see see and we have that problem with governments now with the private sector it's different because a company especially a smaller company if they don't pay attention to their feedback loops then pretty soon they're operating at a loss and soon after that that's the end of them they run out of money the problem with governments of course is they don't really run out of money they just tax you more, print more, what have you, and they can spiral all the way down the drain. And that's part of what we're saying. Yeah. And and um, if I could link that back to something I said earlier, I think, like, remoteness actually makes the feedback loop mechanism less likely to be used 
properly yes, sir. or at all. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. Um, which is, you, you know, I mean, just to um, to give you a practical example of something I'm involved in at the moment. I mean, I've actually sort of uh, no longer affiliated to the Church of England in a formal way, but I've just joined a small organisation that was only created um, a year ago called Save the Parish. And what it's been saying is that um, since medieval times, when we had um, the entire population, albeit miles smaller than our current 67 million, but we had the entire population going to church um, uh, every week, and we had 21 bishops, we've now got a tiny fraction below 5% of our population going to Church of England churches, and we have over 90 bishops. Wow. And the centre has um, uh, grabbed more and more financial and other power to the point that the centre is now making decisions that is just alienating um, the individual churches. And, you know, as an example of the kind of lack of morality of this, we've got thousands, um, Mike, you know, um, approximately 10,000 churches that are medieval, yes. that have their roots in medieval. And in fact, the vast majority of them, you know, when they were built, were Roman Catholic <laughs> yes. before yes. the Reformation. And those churches were, with virtually no exceptions, were actually built and funded by their communities. And if that was a small village community, they did it through the um, through the manor house and and the and the and the rich people in in the area. We've now got to a point where, after the villages build their church, if the Church of England at national and regional level decides that a church building has to be shut in a particular village they can sell the church and take the money to themselves what yeah <laughs> so that's um, so wow. it's a very it's a very interesting example of how what started off as a kind of local community thing has actually developed into this slightly monstrous organizer central organization that's become bigger and bigger and bigger and is now you know, employing, there's a single small diocese, Oxford Diocese, has eight highly paid um, media advisors. Jesus. You know, so we've, we've come a long way from what the original concept was of, of the community doing something to gather around um, their beliefs in, in, in God and in Christ and the church building as being the physical thing that pulled them together. So, forgive me for that um, anecdote, but it's it's um, you know it is an example I think of where you know maybe Mike, you're right that things don't have to grow larger and larger and become more remote. But I think that's perhaps where human nature comes in. That you know human beings love power and influence. And the way you get power and influence is by becoming 
um, responsible for an ever bigger, ever more powerful um, uh, organization with ever more pub publicity. Well, that's that in the sorry, sorry, I just wanted to say that that's how uh, uh, in the pagan construction of things, that's certainly how you become uh, more powerful. But but it seems to me that the whole that's ironically enough, Christianity itself provides the the key to escape that um, that cognitive trap. Let me pause because I want to, I want to hear what Dan, uh, Danny. It's not Dan was going to jump. Well, I just I just wanted to to linger a little bit more on on leadership, and for what you were saying before, Mike, I do, I do agree. People in the West, and and that's my yard, so I won't talk of the East, but people seem not to care as they should about the antics and the machinations of their leaders that's the problem that's the disease that's the cultural infection but the question is when did the infection take hold what was what is the weakness in the hive mind of our society that allows uh, such a pollution and and what can be done to treat it you know what is it materialism is it a post-war kind of jubilation that went on for, for too long were people so uh, poor a few generations ago that when they began to have things they had to have stuff heating clean water and their bins collected and stuff did they did they relax a bit too much and does this speak of the demise of the church well it's i i definitely want to hear what james has to say about this but i just want to say that th this is where this is where loss of religion comes in and and again not not necessarily loss of a particular belief system, but the inability to reason about right and wrong consistently and honestly. The inability to reason about each other consistently and honestly. That's what happens when you lose religion because without religion, without your values in a fixed hierarchy, they're just cards you can shuffle. And you see that all the time. Every other day, you can see something where, wow, that person who was just in favor of this one thing is now in favor. Of they just shuffled a couple cards around, and now they're good to go. I mean, you know, it's 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 so it's so common. It's almost comical. Now, Peter Hitchens says that the beginning of the end for Western Christendom was World War One. And I, you know, the, 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 there's much to kind of recommend his opinion. I think the beginning of the end in in the, 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 the so let's assume that's true. But I I've been obsessed lately with the Cold War as another one of those hinge points that we don't really pay enough attention to. to. I think the Cold War is where we stopped being able to reason. Uh, even in the political realm, about society, about economy, about about shared values, um, we got caught up in this fall. Uh, excuse me, in this fallacy of opposition. If 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 that thing is bad, then the opposite of that has to be good. Well, that's not true at all. There there are a million ways to oppose a bad idea. Which are also bad, and I'm and I'm always going back to C.S. Lewis, who said that the deceiver uh, likes to send um, 
deceptions into the world as pairs of errors. So that when you lurch back from one, you stumble into the other. And that, to me, that's what capitalism and communism are. It's the capital, big capital isn't the opposite of big state. Obviously not. They're kissing cousins. It's just lopsided philosophies that lean on each other just enough to keep them, to keep each other upright. They're both stupid because they both instrumentalize the sacred human. And they both ignore critical questions of scale. And what the hell do I care if, if, if whether I'm instrumentalized by, by, the, by the communist party of whatever state of, of, you know, of California or I'm instrumentalized by, by Amazon.com? The net effect is the same. Yeah. And, and, and we lost the ability to think in that way as a result of the Cold War, as a result of we lost the ability to get perspective on problems. Because you, you, you have to look at a problem and see it, size it up. How, you know, how big is this problem? How, how, uh, how, how strong should my reaction be? How close is this thing to me? How far? How big is it? Well, everything is in shadow. It's hard to get perspective. In the dark, all cats are gray. And, 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 and you, you will cultivate a, a habit of jumping at shadows if you fight a shadow war for 50 years. And that's what we did. So I'll pause there because I want to hear what James has to say, but that's what I've been thinking about. Mike, thank you so much. Um, and when I listened uh, to your um, series of interviews, one of the phrases I wrote down verbatim, um, and which I've got in front of me now, which really, really resonated with me, was every man-made atrocity started with people abstracting away other people's humanity en masse. Yes, sir. And in the build-up to that wonderful phrase, which is undeniably true, you explained that, you know, the big state is so huge that it can't see individuals. So yes, I'm sir. using those two things as a preamble to trying to answer Danny by saying that I think that what we have perhaps lost and which might be causing this um, disconnect is that we have, as a result of a whole variety of different things that have happened over an extended period of time in our history, we have lost community values and we have headed more towards individualism, if I can call it that, um, that the, in, the individual, um, you know, stands entirely on their own two feet. And I think, you know, the building of cities, uh, as someone who, you know, has always lived in the country, I would, I would feel that there is less connection, less sense of community in the bigger cities, certainly in the UK, than there is in, in the countryside, um, and fewer community, community values. So I think maybe what causes organizations to 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 lose touch is that um uh, abstracting away other people's humanity and being unable to see individuals um for a whole host of different reasons and i i, th I think maybe 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 it's right to say it's the first world war it was certainly a very very significant moment in history 
but perhaps the industrial Re revolution was was really where it where it all started i don't i don't know i don't pretend to to know you know th this is it's very interesting that you say that uh, about cities because being kind of a christian pilgrim um one of the things that strikes me is that Christianity is, um, is is really the world's most successful urban religion. It is specifically an urban religion. It specifically issues challenges to nomadic peoples who have decided to settle down in cities. Yeah. If you, you couldn't, you couldn't try, I mean, it seemed like it was almost designed for people of the city. Yes, but by as opposed to, as as opposed to nomadic peoples, and, and so the, the, all my I, I want to hear what you have to say, but I'm just you know it's I am I am, especially because I'm a city I love the country, but I am a city dweller, and I'm particularly sensitive to the way in which American so-called conservatives disparage cities and the people who live in them. Oh, okay. I know I, I know you're not I know you're not doing that. I don't accuse you of that, but um, I think that it's it's always struck me as ironic, maybe not always, but certainly since I've been a foundationist, it struck me, it has struck me as ironic that that Christians in my country speak so disparagingly of cities, um, given that uh, Christianity is very obviously an urban religion. It was born underneath a city at the fringes of a giant technologically advanced empire. Um, yeah, I, the only thing I would uh, that I would say, which you know, that, well, I did I didn't know, for example, about um, the disparaging of city people by, uh, you know, by, by certain wings of politics in the states. I didn't know about that, and I I'm not sure that that's quite the same in in our country. I suppose because the scale is is smaller and the distance between you know big towns is smaller, but. The truth is that um, by the time that we started to get anything that would be remotely like um, a city, e even London, um, Christianity had already started to wane, in, certainly in the UK. Um, and there were, for example, very, very large numbers of new churches. I mean, the the, the, the people who were, um, you know, the, the, the richest, wealthiest and most powerful in the country started building churches in our burgeoning cities in a big way because they thought that without churches, the people moving into the cities were going to become godless. And in the case of a lot of those buildings, they were never full from the very beginning. Never, never, because the, the, um, Christianity was headed... On a downward slope by the time they were built but um now which now, now, which era are you talking about because it seems like this is after the industrial revolution the, the, yeah. this is um you know tail end of the um uh tail end of the 18th but mostly the the, the 19th yeah 19th century um the, our our churches in the uk went through a period uh, as country, we had an, an ungodly period in our history in the 
sort of early 1800s. And what actually happened was that um, the, um, uh, um, the Methodists came about and split a few people off from the Church of England, but also the Church of England became very corrupt. And as a result of that, we almost lost a lot of our, uh, of our churches. Um, to give you one example that I know from first-hand knowledge, one of our great cathedrals in a city north of London called St Albans had 30-foot high trees growing inside it because the roof had collapsed and the trees had seeded on the floor of the building and had grown to 30-foot high. So, yeah, it was from about sort of 1820 to the 1890s, by which stage it's, it's kind of game over by the time you get to the First World War. I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I, I was I was thinking because when I think about the history of London, um, I, I tend to go back a bit further, right? I mean, London is a city. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's been burned down three times. It was sacked in um, in uh, what uh, sixty five A D um, by Danny's people. <laughs> you know, and, and it's, <laughs> people people from the east. <laughs> <laughs> right um and so so the um but 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 what's interesting is that christianity was on the rise in 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 those centuries right so i i think which makes me think that you're on to something james when you talk about the industrial revolution as being this kind of this kind of hinge point um and 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 if you think about it that makes sense because um Anything that fundamentally changes, I mean, man is, 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 you know, we, we are, we're thinking, talking, working creatures. We're the making creatures, right? Homo faber. And so anything that fundamentally changes the relationship of the human being to his work is going to have a colossal seismic effect on everything and what's interesting is you know we we in in a lot of ways there was a a a real reckoning that needed to happen um after the industrial revolution or or as it was going on uh, and uh, a reckoning you know how how are we going to really organize our societies in a way that is just and humane and what have you and that reckoning was just po- it's, it's just been postponed seemingly endlessly. World War One postponed the reckoning. Then you had a brief intermission. Then World War Two postponed the reckoning. Then the Cold War postponed the reckoning because you couldn't talk about labor and whatever and da 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 because because you're a socialist if you say anything against big capital and so on and so forth. And then the quote unquote end of history that happened after the Cold War. Well, what are you complaining about? History is over. We're good. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. So, we, 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 right, we've kept postponing this great reckoning. And, and, and I think a lot of the problems we're seeing now are just the, the, the consequence of, of, of built up tensions and built up pressure and, 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 and things that, have, that, that are that have, that have just gone unresolved for so long. And so the, the, the problem it seems huge. It is huge, but it's 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 a huge problem because we've because we we've neglected ordinary things. We've neglected ordinary things. It's it, the problem is not that we've neglected monumental things. I think I think the the uh, you know we we know of of the of the political movements that want us to focus on giant things, so called global problems, and global problems require global solutions. Nonsense. Yeah. 
global problems require local solutions. The larger, more complex a problem it is, the more local and immediate and close in the solution has to be. Mike, let me something you said about ordinary things. I think I think that's a really good phrase. And you you said about perspective um, a moment ago, and it, for me, perspective is an important word because in that premise and that gift, you know, the gift of perspective, which is the ability to imagine the future and and act in a way if you can muster the strength then you can engage a sense of kind of gratitude for the power to live well to positively affect the lives of those around you and i see this lesson spelled out at the moment at where i'm in my life spelled out in no better terms and in terms that are of practical value than those that christianity has produced i see my countrymen living under the gift of lessons operating in their minds according to such lessons but also having less and less reverence for the genesis of the lessons and i sat in mass last sunday and it was a really good hour or so i just felt i felt good to be it felt good to be there it felt like a spiritual exercise but it also felt like an intellectual exercise like a working stuff out exercise and in a world where we're clamoring to work stuff out we're all at sea why not rest on the lessons? Why not lean on the lessons of Christianity? Why not inspect them? You're, you're not going to be marked as an apostate and punished now, you know. And I can't help but think that this is the disappointing thing. Now might be the time where Christianity has more power to move forward than ever. No? Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've used the same phrase in my on my blog posts routinely which is um the christianity that we need more than ever yeah and we and we do and, that, and people are sort of crying out for it they just don't know what they're crying out for for yes yes that's right and it you know it isn't i don't i don't think it's christianity as it was defined you know a hundred years ago or, or even 50 years ago but i think if we could if we could do I don't know, Mike, um, um, and, and um, I can't remember the sequence, but um, uh, when I was uh, being interviewed by, by Danny, I actually said that I thought that part of the problem with Christianity is that we couldn't actually summarise what on earth it was that we, were, that we stood for. Yeah. Mm. Um, which is one of the reasons why I was attracted to your 10-point precept thing. And uh, do you know um, what, James, I think it does that. Well, I've done about eight or nine episodes now, and I was just thinking the other day, the next person that I interview, I'm going to ask him a, a question that I don't know why it didn't occur to me before. Well, the question is, how do you teach someone to be a Christian? Yeah. Right? Because <laughs> wow. these people are purporting themselves to be scholars of Christianity, leaders. Yeah. They embody the text. Okay, they exemplify it. So it's a fair question, right? How do you teach someone to be a Christian? There might not be a, a decent answer to that. And if there's not a decent answer, if it, if it is, you have to go on your own personal journey and you have to look inside yourself. That's a fair answer. But I don't, mm. I don't see that question being posed. 
No, no, and, and and don't let them get away, Danny. Just remember that you I heard it. Not. Don't <laughs> let them get away with answering your question by saying, ah, you just read the Bible and it tells you everything you need to know. Because if, no, it isn't, it yeah, isn't good, enough, good enough. And you need, yeah. to, <laughs> you need yeah. not to let them get away with that, which is what our bishops trot out all the time. But it's, yeah, and if they would say something that. like, look inside yourself, well, like, the, the, the rebound question is, look inside yourself and, and answer my question. Yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, here's here's the thing. I think I want I wanted to say this before before I forgot to say it is that if if we're talking about how to how to pull us back from the brink, obviously I think religion is part of that. Obviously, mm -hmm. you you do too, James. I think I I keep going back to Roger Scruton. The late great Roger Scruton, he was giving a lecture. I think it was on beauty or something like that. Beauty and music, and, and not a lecture. It was, it was like a, a symposium or you know, panel discussion. And someone asked how someone asked him how it was possible to get young people who had been raised on Lady Gaga. I think he, he said to be mm. interested in mm. Bach. And what he said, what Scruton said is, you can't directly. You will not get young people, mostly, raised on pop music to appreciate Bach. What you first have to get them to do is yes. appreciate silence. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then in that silence, that, 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 that's fertile ground in which you can cultivate the love of things like Bach and, you know. Ellington and Mozart and what happened. And so I think uh, as, as I look around and I see what a lot of more politically active Christians are doing, especially in my country, because we have a little bit more of an evangelical and Pentecostal Baptist strain in our country than in yours with the Anglican Compromise. Um, I think they're, they're, I have to say, I love my Christian brethren who are trying to do that and calling people to Christ. But I think that's, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the right approach. People are so, certain people are so far down the path of kind of this, this nihilistic materialism that you can't call them directly to that. You have to, you, you have to, you have to just, if you can just get them to see that the world is alive and it's thinking, <laughs> you know, that would be, it's like, you know, if, if you can just get people to, again, to adopt certain mental disciplines, yeah, yeah. then you have a shot at cultivating something else. And, you know, speaking of discipline, you know, the, the, the other thing I, I would, that came to me as you were talking just now, James, is that um, I think it was either you or, or Danny was talking about work and you were talking about having to, you know, putting in the time to cultivate something. And I was just thinking, just this, this thing that I've been, this phrase I've been obsessed with came to me, which is that love is a discipline. Hmm. I, I think it was maybe because we were talking about, about, about creating, you know, uh, associations between people and how to, and, and it just, it just, look, <laughs> if, if you think about, if you think about love as just a feeling, the problem there is it doesn't demand anything of you. Mm. 
That's the problem. Well, I love so and so. Well, okay, fine. But what does that cost you? What is that? What 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 strictures does that impose on you? But if you think about love as a discipline, then your whole approach is different. Because now there's certain things you have to do. And we we've we've gotten away. Look, and part of part of what's got us is just the fact that we have we've built a civilization that's so big and so powerful and shields us so well from the baseline realities of life, of disease, of weather, of of apex predators, of barbarians coming over the hill, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um that that we've just we've just gotten soft. And now in in days past, a society that was big and successful would continue to inculcate certain values in its children through myth and you know these, these kind of teaching of tradition, so they'd remember. And then you'd have religious traditions that 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 ceremonially reintroduced certain hazards, like starvation. Right, that's what fasting is. When I think about fasting, it's a ceremonial reintroduction of scarcity, so that you remember. Right. So, so you don't just get soft living in this big, well-armed, well-defended civilization. OK, so part of that is just we are the victims of our own success. How do we pull back from that? Well, again, I think the first thing is we, we, we go for small things. We're talking about scale. Right. So, so let's not try to have a mass road to Damascus moment. <laughs> let's let's not do that. Let's pay attention to scale. How can we get people to just adopt better habits of thought? How can we get people to 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 start asking better questions? On what basis? Okay, you're not religious, or you you you're an atheist, or you're okay, fine. But okay, so so on what basis do you challenge an unjust law? Mm. What is there that tells you how do you how do you come to know that a law is unjust? Mm. Nature can't tell you. The law certainly can't tell you. Obviously. So on, on what basis can you challenge that? You know, and and over time, I think we can start to we can start to we might start to see um, a renewed interest in religious matters, and then we could start talking about how to teach someone to be a good ex, to be a good Christian, so on and so forth. But the, but the first thing is how do you how do you get people? reasoning honestly about their lives and asking good questions about their lives yes um you 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 both know that um that um theological reflection is is kind of pretty much what i am and it's as a result of that that um you know your your um suggestion that uh, uh that one of the ways to bark uh, was silence um hit the spot for me because I don't know any other way to theological reflection other than silence. And I realized this conversation has gone on for quite a long time, but I wanted to sort of almost wrap up this part of the conversation by telling you, if you, if you'll allow me another, another little anecdote from my past that Please do. Um, when, when I first um, started leading services in in church one of the things which i came across by pure accident was a formal service that's known as taze that's t t a i z e acute which is actually the name of a village in 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 southern france um 
but it was a center of reconciliation both before the Second World War and afterwards. And it became a place of pilgrimage and still is. It attracts huge numbers of young people. But part of what lies at the heart of Teze is in the middle of the service, there is a five minute total silence. And the very first, the very first service I led, I had one of the um, lovely elder members of our community already well into her 70s by that stage, who after the service came up to me and said, thank you, James, for the first five minutes of complete silence that I can remember in my life for more than 20 years. And maybe, wow. maybe that's part of our problem as a society is that everything's too frenetic. And when we could have silence, we drown it out by turning on the radio or, or you know, having some other noise in, a, in, our, in our backgrounds. And I, to get close to God, here's my, here's my statement, absolute statement, to get close to God, you need to, you need to be in silence. I agree. Danny, can I can I read an excerpt from something that uh, that I've always this, this is a, a a Peter Hitchens essay for this religious magazine called First Things. Please, um, it's from it's from this essay he wrote called A Church That Was. Um, the great church broods over the small town, once a seat of power but long overtaken in size and importance by some shapeless industrial blob nearby. There is usually an elegant close of 18th century gentlemen's houses, breathing the sweet combination of scripture, reason, and tradition, which is the whole point of the Anglican compromise. There are gardens and trees almost as ancient as the buildings. All is regulated in an unworldly rhythm by bells and choirs, matins and evensong they are shrines to a particular view of life thought and death here we were inducted into the mysteries of our national religion reasonable surprisingly masculine for a faith that might at first glance seem soppy and weak confident and perhaps above all things unselfconsciously beautiful the beauty came from elsewhere as a free gift in the language of worship and scripture chosen in the 16th and 17th centuries. For 300 years it was just so, not especially treasured or remarked, but constant. Beautiful. Lovely, yeah, um, and, 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 so, and so true, so true. Great. Yeah, I mean... How long have you been... Um pouring over that passage mike i've been reading this i think i i, I reread this essay about maybe once every couple of months <laughs> i just go back to it he wrote it back in 2016 and um i just i just love it you know i i in in, the, in this one article that i wrote for cornerstone i i said that um i said that you know if, if we're going to build if we're going to build futures that are humane and livable. We have to respect and love vanished things. Mm. 
And people unfairly accuse Peter Hitchens of all types of things, but perhaps the most unfair is that he's a nostalgist. He's not a nostalgist. He's a chronicler of vanished things. Yeah. And um, and, and you have to have that. And 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 we we have to. We, this is that's the other thing about 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 silence, right? Is there uh, you know when when you when you fall silent yourself, you open yourself up to what what else is happening, and th- there's a sense in which we have to have a different kind of almost like a, a, a I don't know what you'd call this, but a kind of a temporal a silence with respect to time. So that we can look back and 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 open ourselves to what happened before, and and look at it honestly and openly, and love it irrationally, love it, love our history because it's our history, because it's ours, and we're never going to have another one. Well, you know, just speaking of history, I I, I had a little um, something written down that I'd like to read out as well. Um, luckily, it's shorter than than yours because i'm not going to read it in the timbre <laughs> that you can read it in my <laughs> my crap voice but it's uh marcus aurelius it's, it's from meditations and he says how absurd and a complete stranger to the world is the man surprised at any aspects of his experience in life and i read this i, I think he's saying wake up to yourself He's saying, he's saying, do not under any circumstances believe the illusions of the past and believe the illusions of the future. You know, the past was there and the future is imagined. But the present is where you will live and the present is where you will die. Look at your feet and choose where to place them with care and thought. And hopefully that care and thought will move you forward with grace. I mean, we are all guilty of ruining the moment, right? That's not going away. That ruination is part of our living condition. But to notice yourself in the moment is to have the chance, is to have the opportunity to do good in the world. And in the moment, the world is all we've got. That's it. We affect it. It's a question of meditation. It's a question of presence of mind. But is that difficult? Is it possible? Certainly it's possible. It's a choice. Yes, it's a choice within many choices that you have in the moment. And that's the thing about religious leaders that I don't get. I believe that religious leaders, I believe their role is to outline the power of the choice in the moment. Hmm. See, I'm not so sure about that because look, human, look, human beings are made almost entirely of memory. That's, that's the only problem with living in the moment. Is that, Let's say look, live in the moment. I said, choose what to do with the moment. But you have to, but, but you are made of uh, uh, an almost infinite procession of moments before this one that you're living in. And you can only live correctly in this moment if, if, if you carry all those moments with you. And so that, that's, that's why, so I like, I, like, I like Marcus Aurelius, but sometimes, sometimes I wonder if he was just, I don't know. I don't know. I, I wonder if he was, if if he if he was he was saying that from the perspective of someone who saw that his civilization was 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 waning, or someone who was, you know, were the Stoics just morally exhausted? I'm not too sure, but what I think what in that text is the lesson that 
if you move in the moment based on your assessment of the past, could be yesterday, could be the last week, could be what someone said, could be what a political figure said or whatever, or you move in the moment based on your imagination of what the future could be, I think that's substandard than concentrating on the moment. Who's around you? What's around you? What decision you must make now to move in grace? Mm, see, this this is a fruitful, I think this is a very interesting discussion here because, because to me, you, I mean, the whole point of religious, earlier you asked, how do you teach someone to be a Christian, right? Well, once someone is instructed in any religious tradition, how do you know if that instruction took or not? You know, because they are, it changes their relationship to time. And so I, that's, I'm wrestling with, with, is, is what Aurelius said in that quote, does that run counter to the idea that we have to take our path, we, we have to kind of integrate our past and, and live with it in each moment? And, 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 and the, the Chesterton's uh, saying that, that we will have the dead at our councils. Yeah, know? the integration it, of the past it, is inescapable. Yeah, and yeah. the imagination of the future is inescapable but it's in the moment that you move forward. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, the phrase that comes to my mind is, you know, how do you teach someone to, to become a Christian? Well, you don't because it's a, it is a lifelong journey. And there are times in your life when you're not in a good place to move forward. So you have to hope at that moment that you don't at least move backwards, that you you stay where you are until circumstances change, even if only very fleetingly. It can be it can be a you know sort of half an hour walk in the park, and the time is is ripe for you to move forward by another half a pace, and that's been my experience of the Christian journey, um, uh, with silence being silence and contemplation i mean one of the reasons why i'm so attracted to you two guys is that you're deep thinkers and if i can uh, if i can tell you a little little joke uh, my, my very first girlfriend was from southern ireland and uh, she was she was took me into a pub in dublin on one occasion and there were three or four slightly older people there and um uh, and after about half an hour one of them looked at me and in his broad southern southern Irish brogue said, James, I can see you're a tinker. <laughs> 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 Which of course I berated him for. Did he explain himself? In English means something different to tinker <laughs> in than tinker. But, but <laughs> we have to teach ourselves to be tinkers. We do. We really do. Um, because without it, life is is nowhere near as rewarding but challenging at the same time and it's it's kind of it's it's kind of somewhere in that discussion mike that you have about face the present is this idea that you know you get into um a helicopter and look down on your life and i and what attracted me to that is that i'm afraid there are too many people who, who don't ever ever you know over decades they they live and die without ever kind of looking down and wondering what their life has been all about and whether it has any meaning or any value 
I think uh, let's let's think about some of the things that really have our society um, that are troubling our society. Isn't it isn't it the case that there's too much centeredness? In other words, what you're talking about is like, look, your whole mission, right? The, the whole mission of the Infinite Jigsaw podcast, making sense. That's, you know, maybe that's a good place to come back to because that that's that's something that I'm just that, that I'm just always um, mm. that I'm just fully. That's a mission that I, I think is it's almost it's almost like that's almost like a religious calling. You know, and it's a sense. I have to right? remind myself of it. I have to meditate on that and not stray from that mission it's I, I know what you mean but but it's it, it's a good mission it's a righteous mission mm. and the thing is that that but, but but like i think i think that's what i'm grappling with because that is this weird kind of sense making is this weird kind of equilibrium right between it, it between action and contemplation between stillness and movement right because because you you have to go out and and your senses have to take things in right you have you have to actively pull in what's happening around you um and sometimes you have to react to it what have you but while you're doing that you're also you're also keeping some still place inside you where where you're making something and what you're making is sense of the world you know and, and and that's kind of, and then you're going to act based on the sense you make of the world, and that's a feedback loop, you know. And so, and so whenever I hear, the, 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 it's not that I necessarily disagree with Aurelius or that I disagree with Buddhists completely. It's just that they they all seem they all seem incomplete. Ironically, Christianity is the only thing that seems complete. I agree. That's the only. That's the only. That's the only thing that seems that seems to, to capture that 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 contradiction. You know, what I'm I agree. But what, the... what the the question I ask myself is: What is the mode of sense making? Uh, what mode are you in when you're making best sense of the world? And I think that mode is something to do with self restraint. And I think noticing yourself in the moment is replete with, you know, self restraint. Because isn't it unusual to think of nothing? And when I do try to think of nothing or think of one thing, it does me some good. The, the old joke is that when you kneel in church on a Sunday and you try and clear your mind to listen to God, that's the moment at which you realise that, um, you know, 10 minutes drive away, you failed to turn the gas off in your in your kitchen. Before you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and I think... I'm only telling you that silly story to underline that, you know, I completely agree with you, I, I, which which is why I think that what I try to do in those moments is to fill my mind with reflecting about the uh, about the Almighty. So when I walk, I look at the hedgerows, and and I I find myself thinking, um, why. God, did you make so many thousands of different types of butterfly? What was what was going through your head when you did that? Um, you know, and and as a result of that, 
you can actually find yourself going off into um, what is almost prayer, but without actually you, uh, without you um, consciously deciding that you're going to pray. You, you're kind of trying to listen for the. And God, by asking that question, I mean, one, James, when you're um, walking around, you're restraining your own biases. You're asking a, a grand yeah. question to the universe. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, there's a um, there's a, a famous um, saying, which, again, is a bit a bit flippant, but it, it does fit in. There's a there's a piece in the Old Testament where the young prophet Samuel um, is is called several times from his bed and he thinks it's his master in the next door room calling him. So he goes rushing in and eventually the master realizes and says to Samuel, um, it, it's the Lord calling you. When when you go back into your room and when it happens again, say, um, uh, speak, Lord, because your servant is listening. And he said the problem with most Christians is that, that they actually kneel there and say, listen, God, because your servant is speaking. That's so cool. That's so correct. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Gentlemen, um, I, I haven't got long yeah. before I no, have to push off. <laughs> Um, Neither have I, but I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed sharing your company. And thank you so much for allowing me into your little band. You are very well. Thank you. Wonderful well conversation. Wonderful. Mike, Mike should, should we, um, would you mind if we, we asked James, and James, would you mind if we ask you to leave us with a prayer? I'd be very happy to, very happy to. Um, Heavenly Father, you know that we're all terribly weak. And you also know that we struggle to understand our position in the world as we face a world that sometimes feels very much as though you're not part of it. Try to breathe into us, Lord, a sense of your presence as we go about our daily lives so that we can hear your voice and use it to try and lead better lives. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you very much for that hour and a half, gentlemen. That's been truly enlightening and, and lovely, and I'm all the better for it. Me too. Yeah, that Me was too. wonderful. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. I'd just like to meet you. It would be, be even better. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> From your lips to God's ear. <laughs> yeah. Let's do this again. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right, gentlemen. Much. God Cheers. bless. Cheers, Chaps. God bless, Torah.